Father, it is amazing to be able to sing those words that it is well with our soul. For we who have been made alive to the reality of who you are and your glory and your holiness, who have been made to feel the bitterness of our own sin, know that it should not be that way. But it is because of grace, sovereign grace, divine grace. And it is for that that we worship you and we praise you for who you are in yourself and for what you have done to us in rescuing us from this evil generation and delivering us into the kingdom of your beloved son. From snatching us, as it were, from the domain of darkness and giving us every promise that is the inheritance of Christ. And so we thank you and we ask now that as we open your word once again to Revelation, you would begin to unfold, continue to unfold for us the great glories that will mark the end of this age, that you would give us spiritual understanding uh, as well as we go through, that we might delight in, glory in, and have increased hope in you and your purposes and plans for your creation and to unfold the glories of your redemption. And it is to that end we pray in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to Revelation chapter 6. We've had uh, some uh, side messages, some things we wanted to look at uh, before we got into this next section. uh, Beginning in chapter 6 and running all the way through to chapter 19. And it is the unfolding of God's plans uh, for this present age as we anticipate the great culminating event of that plan which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ physically and bodily to the earth to bring his kingdom, executing his justice on all in his kingdom who are rebels and usurpers and bringing in the glories of his salvation and redemption as promised to his people. And so this is in chapter 6, the beginning of the unfolding of those wonderful and those glorious glorious realities. And as we've noted that uh, this coming of the kingdom, while in anticipation of God's people, of the glories of our salvation, it is first an event, an act, a movement, a bringing in of judgment, a judgment of a world that stands in opposition to Christ, a world that stands in opposition to his truth, a world that does not live for his glory, that does not, in short, seek to love God with a whole heart, whole mind, and whole soul which is the requirement, the essential requirement of God from all of humanity. And so God is going to uphold his glory and uphold his justice first by bringing judgment and then by bringing salvation, which is, as we noted before in brief, the pattern of God always since the promise of salvation has worked its way out in the corridors of history as he has formed himself a people who, himself also, who themselves often had to experience his discipline and severe discipline. But always the end of that was to bring about part of his saving and redeeming purposes. And so it is in Revelation. Judgment is to come. Judgment is to be severe. But at the end of it is the salvation that our hearts long for and that we hope for. And as we've noted before, and it's important to remember here up front, as thankful as we are for God's mercies to us in our present situation, particularly as 
citizens of the nation of America, the reality is that the revelation of Scripture, the testimony of Scripture, is not that things are moving forward and marching forward to this glorious kingdom and this glorious event here on earth, but rather that things here on earth are descending downward. Corruption is increasing, that violence is increasing, and that it will continue to do so, and that man will be given over to a greater and greater depraved mind and under the influence of the evil one as a part of God's judgment on this present age. That has played itself out in short form and many form throughout the annals again of history, but it will in a global sense be the reality that marks the end of this age. So while we are thankful for mercies and we delight in them and we should work for what is good always being light and salt in this world, we understand as well that things will get much worse before they get better. Things will get much worse, particularly for God's people, before they realize the wonders and the glories that God has planned for them. But the hope and what all of Scripture and particularly Revelation reminds us of, and what again we will uh, note particularly this morning, is that God has a plan and God is working out this plan. God has a purpose and he's working out this purpose. Uh, Things are not random Things are exactly on the divine timetable. Things are exactly as God intends them to be right at this moment. Even the rebellion against him is a part of his plan. It is not outside of his control, but it is, in fact, an exact fulfillment of all that he has ordained to bring him glory. Ultimately, even in the overcoming of it. Now, this morning, we are going to introduce this next section and then consider the various aspects of it over the next uh, several weeks. And we're going to break up the chapter 6 in this following way. Uh, The Lamb's judgment begins, which is what we'll consider primarily this morning in chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1. And then we'll look at the initial six seal judgments. Remember, there are seven seals, but we will begin to look at the first six seals uh, laid out for us in uh, Revelation chapter 6. The seventh being uh, picked up in chapter 8 and opening up to the trumpets and then the bowls and so forth. And then we'll consider the response to the judgments, uh, the initial six judgments uh, that take up verses 15 through 17. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. But let's begin by reading the chapter in its entirety, especially as we're coming to introduce it this morning, uh, to get a feel for what he has revealed to us. So we'll begin in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 6, and I'll read all the way down to verse 17, and you can read along with me. Remember, this is after the great vision of the throne room that John had when Christ took the scroll with the seven seals from the right hand of the Father. Verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out to him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth, then that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, 
I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so is the introduction of the beginning of the unfolding of the judgments of God upon this present age. And let's note first then, the Lamb's judgment begins. The Lamb's judgment begins. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seventh seals. He saw this is not beginning a new vision. This is, in fact, continuing the vision that began back in chapter 4, verse 1. After the message to the churches, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven, and the first voice which I heard. And he goes on to detail after being called up into the heavenly throne room to be shown what must be take, take place after these things. That is, after the things that were recounted of the, in the messages of Christ to the seven churches. That vision in which he was brought to see the glory of the Father on the throne and the worship that was around it, the living creatures, the 24 elders, which he was uh, made to see the glory of the Lamb, the only worthy one in heaven and earth, to take from the right hand of the Father the scroll with the seven seals that are now being opened. This is a continuation of that vision. He saw it was before his eyes, it was before his mind's eye, it was filling him with all of his sensory perception and this vision experience in which he was, that he was brought into by the Holy Spirit of God to see and to feel and to understand all that God was revealing, namely his purposes for creation. And now it unfolds. And notice what he says up front, again, that I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. As I noted, this lamb is the one who was introduced to us, which is none other than the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. The lamb who was the one who were alone out of all of heaven and earth was found worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father. The lamb who we noted then is the presentation of Christ throughout the book of Revelation. 
the lamb who is the one who executes divine wrath, the lamb who shepherds his people, the lamb who is returning in judgment, the lamb who is king. And this is a great and glorious picture of the lamb who is such because he was slain for his people, the lamb who, as we read out of Colossians, by his being slain and dying and atoning death, earned the right as the incarnate son and the promised Messiah over all of humanity and over his kingdom. It is that lamb who is now opening the seven seals. This is the lamb of God, the lamb of God. Now, as I noted, we covered the imagery of the Lamb uh, back in chapter 5 when he's introduced to us in this vision experience of John. And we noted some of those things that I just mentioned, how the Lamb in this, this multifaceted portrait of the glory of Christ, both in judgment and in salvation, both in the care of his people and the execution of his enemies, is this wonderful contradiction to our eyes but this beautiful fullness of the purposes of God in Christ as both savior and as judge we're introduced to him again here and I think it's important then that we take a little bit of time to consider again this imagery of the lamb and this reality of Christ as the one who is unfolding these judgments and it's important to take just at least a few minutes up front to do that because if there's one thing that I think we would agree is that there is an unbalanced view of Christ in the church popular, in the popular church, in evangelicalism at large. We have numbers of churches and what would amount to essentially the most popular ministries who are embracing even the most wicked movements and ideologies of our culture, celebrating LGBTQ, diminishing and trivializing the name of Christ, Embarrassed about the word of God and the hard things it says and distorting the message of Christ and his glory. That, of course, isn't new to our age, but we certainly experience it in our own way in our day. And so it's important to be reminded of who he is. I came across this week uh, a short little video clip of a recent uh, episode at Saddleback Church in California in which the pastor and his wife both pastors, because they accept female pastors in rejection of scripture. Uh, they came out and they were dressed as uh, the to Andy and the Toy Story and whoever the other was and whatever, Pink Hat. But anyway, they came out and they were dressed in this in these cartoon figures to try to introduce some ministry series that they had. And they looked silly. They looked ridiculous. You could almost sense the fact that they felt ridiculous in that. And yet these were supposedly representatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I dare say that in a church service like that, to unfold the glories of Christ as king and as judge would be unwelcome, distasteful, unloving, rejected even. And yet that's precisely the Christ that we meet in scripture. But it's the one that's hidden from so many. In that congregation, there were thousands of people. And there's thousands of people that fill some of these mega churches that receive no better than that in their presentation of Christ. So it is important to just take a few moments to consider again who Christ is and who is this lamb who is opening the seven seals. And he is, in addition to what has been said, I would want to add just these, because this is what's going to be particularly unfolded as we go through. 
is that he is the divine king and he is the divine judge. He is a divine king and he is the divine judge. We must never forget that. He is a tender savior. He is gentle and humble in heart. He is the one who laid down his life for his people. He is the one who had nailed above his head, essentially, metaphorically, our charges, as Colossians would later say in chapter 2, for our sin. He is the redeemer. He is the promised one. He is a tender to everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. He is a gentle savior to every broken sinner who comes burdened with the weight of their guilt. But he is also a terrifying judge of those who reject him and those who live in unbelief. He is also a king who will allow no challenges and no rivals within his kingdom. That's who he is. He's both. And we dare not lose sight of his tenderness and his gentleness in his judgment, and we dare not lose sight of his judgment in celebration of his gentleness, of his, or in his, looking at him as king. Uh, we must remember that he is both a judge and a great savior. Well, let's look at this first. He is a divine king. Christ is the divine king. He has the right to begin these judgments because he is the king of all humanity. The great contrast throughout all of scripture, and particularly in Revelation, is the kings of men and the kings of the earth who seek to establish a kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of Christ who seek to establish an authority that is in opposition to the authority of Christ. While this happens throughout the ages, no doubt, it particularly is going to mark the kingdom of, that is coming at the end of the age, in which the kings of the earth amount together to live according to their own dictates, alpha under the authority of God, and in rebellion to him. They are kings who mount together with the beast, to stand in opposition to Christ. Just giving you one passage here. The be in chapter 17, just listen. In verse 11, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eight and is one of the seven and goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And these have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. And that is in itself the climactic expression and reality and manifestation of what is at the heart of every ruler and every kingdom outside of those that, of the true king that is coming. That is the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man that stands in opposition to the glory of Christ. And the authority they are given to them is given to them by the divine purposes of God. It is given to them in limited measure and it is given to them only to ultimately be taken from them in their destruction. And yet, that is the portrait of the kingdoms of men. And yet, standing over all of that is Christ who is the true King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is regularly presented as such in Scripture Ruling as king and with all authority with the Father as the Son, both in his pre-incarnate glory and his post-incarnate glory. Let me just very, very briefly remind you of a couple of passages. One, which you're well familiar with and probably thinking of, is in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we have this great introduction 
to one of the core themes throughout the Psalms, which is namely that God is on his throne, God establishes his king, and his king ultimately is the ruler of all men and will be the one that is established. Again, only to mention it briefly, in Psalm 2, he begins and he says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing, and the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That is, in a nutshell, what is behind the kingdoms of men, to establish their kingdom outside of the reign of God, to establish their kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom that is established in the appointment of his king. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He will break them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break Break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, and worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. In short, God stands unthreatened by the kings and the kingdoms of this world. The might of all of the armies of men are as nothing. And in the words and the language of Isaiah the prophet, speaking the words of God, says they are less than nothing. They are meaningless. They are only to be laughed at by him who is the true king and sits on the throne and establishes his kingdom. And here he says, this is the one I will tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now there is a sense in which Psalm 2 refers to all of the line of the Davidic kings according to the promise of David, and yet all of them failing, all of them not fulfilling this. This is as repeated in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, in anticipation of the great Son, the true Son, the divine Son, the eternal Son, who will in take on flesh and stand in this role as being the ruler and the king of men and the kingdom of God, with all divine authority. He is the ultimate promised son of David, even as was announced in the Gospels, that he is David's son, the promised Messiah. When he comes, unlike the weakness of human kings, unlike the limited power of human kings, he will establish a kingdom at which no opposition is a threat. He stands in absolute authority and will fulfill the purposes of God. Let me give you just one other Psalm 29, after describing to God the glory and his power over creation and all of, over all of the created realm, he says this in verse 10, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people and the Lord will bless his people. 
He is the divine king. He is the divine king over his creation. Here he is king that sat over flood. That means he, even at the time he destroyed all of humanity at first in Genesis chapter 6 and following, as a result of the mounted rebellion and unbelief of men, he is the one who sats as king now over all of the nations, executing his divine will and his purpose. He is the king. He has sovereign rule over all of the nations. And that is a threat to those who stand outside of his saving purposes and a joy and a hope to those who belong to him, which is how the psalm presents it. One commenting on that said this, Even as in the days of the flood when he destroyed creation with his power but saved his own, so it is at any time that God's glory is expressed in the severity of his judgment. He rules over nations and peoples that inhabit and transverse the land, sea, mountains, and the steep regions. In other words, he is the king. He is the king. He is the one in the Psalms, in Psalm 45, who is recognized by the writer of Hebrews, of speaking of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He manifests his reign in his acts of judgment and his acts of salvation. He is in Psalm 110, God's king, the Messiah, who is at his right hand until he makes, being the father, makes his enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus himself identifying his own person and his own ministry with the one recognized in Psalm 110. He is the son of man who is given a kingdom and who will execute that kingdom with all authority and glory. We've looked at that before. Let me just read it to you. Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, bloodied, bruised, shamed by his own people, handed over as a criminal, rejected by those who should have loved him. Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus bore testimony that he is in fact a king, though his kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, his servants would be delivering him from such atrocities. But his kingdom is one that is to come. And so he is in Revelation at the very introduction he is the ruler, in chapter 1, verse 5, of the kings of the earth. He is, as we read earlier in verse 15 of chapter 6, the one from whom the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, hide themselves. He is the one who has the name written on him in his thigh when he comes as the champion in glory to, uh, in glory to establish his kingdom who says, has written on him king of kings and the lord of lords. Is simply to say the Lamb is the King. He is the one with all authority. He is the one with all power. He is the one with who will establish his kingdom. And none can thwart it. He is also the divine judge. He's also the divine judge, this Lamb. Let me remind you of one key passage here. As we'll come across this again and again in Revelation. But in John chapter 5, he says this. As John records the opposition to his ministry, 
the opposition to the revelation of who he was. And after a healing, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I am working in John chapter 5, 17. For this reason, they, they wanted to kill him, the leaders, because not only did they think he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. They understood why were these? Why was that statement and his statement, particularly of his working with the Father, doing the works of God in light of the healings that he had just done? Why was that so monumentally offensive to them? Because essentially, Jesus was saying this: that he is working the works of the Father. He is doing the works that the Father he has given him to do as a manifestation of the God's own authority and power resident in him. And not merely as a prophet, but one who is doing these works in such a way that he is to receive in them equal glory with the Father. And so that's how he explains it. Actually, back in, uh, go down in verse 21, just as the father raises the dead, now he's continuing these works. You think that was, you think raising, you think healing and casting out demons is a work to marvel at? Greater works are going to come, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Listen, and this is the key. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. A little later in verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he gave the Son to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the significance here is not only that he acts in the authority of the Father, but that in that acting in the authority of the Father, he shares equal glory with the Father as one who is in union with him and by his own right shares in the rule and the judgment of all humanity. In other words, it is to say he is equal to God. He is God. And his equality with God is here demonstrated in two particular acts. One, in giving life and in judging. And that includes, ultimately, those being manifest in the resurrection. The resurrection of life and the resurrection to judgment. And so it is here again, we meet with this reality of the exalted son, the exalted incarnate son, as the judge, the lamb who broke the seven seals. This great unity of the father and of the lamb is shown again at the end when the people recognize that the judgment that is coming, the judgment from which they want to hide, is from the throne and from the lamb. It is from the father and it is from the son. It is to say together it is the judgment of God. The judgment of God. And so here is the beginning of that judgment. By the lamb. The lamb. The humble one. The one who was slain for us. Now unfolding for us the terrible end that is to come upon this world. So it's the beginning of this judgment, the breaking of the seals. And the first of three series of judgments. The judgment of the seals, which we'll deal with here up to chapter 8. Then the judgment of the trumpets. And then the judgment of the bowls, each increasing in intensity. And so what does he do, this judge? Secondly, he begins to initiate the six-seal judgment. 
So when I saw the lamb, he broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come, come. Notice the four seals as we go through here. If you notice, picked it up as we read through, if you weren't already familiar with it. The first four seals are associated with the four living creatures who were before the throne. And there is actually a grouping that goes uh, throughout of four and two. Uh, here with the seals and with the other judgments as well. But here are the four, four living creatures, each being connected with the first four seals and the judgments that are to come afterward. And they are executing these judgments in response to the command to come and to fulfill the mission for which they have been called. And that is warfare, famine, suffering, destruction. These four seals are, and these four horses that are called with the first four seals, you're uh, probably familiar with, are often uh, called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You can probably find many movies and cheesy films that have that kind of title, which are meant to show the, the atrocities that are going to be experienced by humanity at the hand of these four horses called by God, again, as he executes judgment. Here, however, they are explained to us and laid before us as the first of God's judgments. Now, before we get to those, which we're going to look at in detail next week, uh, we have to consider where the imagery, as you go through Revelation, it is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And the imagery that is given to us here and throughout and already that we've looked through is grounded in God's anticipation of future events laid for us in the Old Testament. This here finds its clearest Old Testament background in the book of Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah. So let's just turn there for a sec. If you went to the Gospel of Matthew, if you're not familiar, and just kept going back a few books, you're going to come to the book of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. So you'd go Matthew, Malachi, going towards the front, and then you're going to come across Zechariah. A very important Old Testament prophecy, particularly in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Now, I want to just very briefly here look at a couple of passages so we can get an idea of the background of John's mind here, at least in the imagery. Zechariah is one of the later writing prophets, and he is writing... And in his right to encourage the people of God and to warn them. And ultimately, he lays out for us in 14 chapters under inspiration of the Spirit, one of the clearest representations of the future ministry of the coming Messiah. And as he begins his revelation in verse 8, he picks up on some imagery that you'll recognize. He said in verse 8, I saw at night a man, uh, uh, at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red sorrel, sorrel and white horses behind him. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And so they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. 
And then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words and comforting words. And so the angel who was speaking with, to me said, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. And so we are met immediately with the imagery of four horses, each identified by their color. Although those colors are given no specific explanation here. But their mission is that they are sent out by God to patrol the earth. To give an account of the events of man on the earth. This is a military context. The horses are that of military might and of strength and of swiftness. And so it is here. And they are sent out into all of the earth. To give an account of what is happening in God's kingdom. And that is the overall imagery here. And the point is that God is the one who is sovereignly ruling over his kingdom. He is the one keeping account of events. He is the one working out his purposes for his people. And so they go and they come back and they report to him. And they say that there is peace. All is peaceful and quiet. Now... We would think that is good, but in fact, in this context, it is not good, particularly because of the situation of Jerusalem, which is in shambles, which has not been restored and has not yet been restored from judgment that God brought upon his people for their sin. And so what does he mean? All the earth is peaceful and quiet. All is settled. It's not positive, but is actually seen here to be a problem. Now, there's two ways to take it. Some see it as referring to the attitude of God's people in exile who have become complacent in their situation, but that's not as likely as the rest of the text will explain. It most likely and most certainly is this. It refers to the relative peace. Certainly, there were conflicts still going on, but the relative peace among the nations while Israel sat in exile and sat in shame. Why is that discouraging? Because essentially for those people who are there, their feeling and their cry is, is there not vindication? Is there not retribution for what these nations have done to your temple and to your land and to your people? All is at peace. Should we not expect the judgment of God to come and to bring an accounting for what we have experienced for the rebellion against you? And so it's not comforting words. That all things are at peace. It is, in fact, a sense of wonder at what God's future plans are for his people whom he loves. Will they be vindicated? Will he vindicate his name? This imagery is then picked up a second time in Isaiah, Zechariah chapter 6. And he says, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, Four chariots were coming out from between the two mountains, and the mountains were the bronze mountains. And the first chariot were uh, the first chariot with the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot black horses, and with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. And then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking to me, "What are these, my lord?" And the angel replied, "These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. With one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white." Ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. 
And when the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth or walk about the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth and he cried out to me and he spoke to me saying, see those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. And the word of the Lord also came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles from Helda, Tobiah and Jedidiah and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have, well, where they have arrived from Babylon. What is the imagery here? Here you notice that there are chariots added to this and multiple horses. Again, red, black, white, and dappled horses. But again, the, the color here is not explained. So while we can draw inferences, it's best to leave that uh, pretty much untouched without at least being dogmatic. But what can be said is this with clarity, is that these chariots are now an amplification of the strength and the power of God as these are war chariots. And again, a picture of military strength, of military might, of military power of the one who is the true ruler over all of the nations. Chariots were a common picture of this kind of military strength and power. And associated with God, let me just give you one text out of many. The chariots of God in Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are myriads and thousands upon thousands. And the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. It's picturing God there as the ruler, as the king, as the one who stands sovereign over the nations. His chariots are driven, as, are driven by his power and accomplish his purposes with might. And so here it is. The chariots of God, war chariots pulled by horses, which symbolize strength, representing God's angelic agents. He calls them the four spirits, and they are executing his purpose. And in this case, they have reported to him, and they are coming to him, but also executing his purpose of judgment on the Gentiles' nations. They are the ones who are fulfilling his purpose to execute justice against those who have done such injustice against his people. See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. They have appeased his wrath because they go to execute his judgment. His judgment. And so here then is imagery that is meant for this purpose, and this is the thing to hold on to, particularly as we come into Revelation. God reigns with sovereignty over his entire creation. Why is he sending them out to patrol the earth? Because the earth is his kingdom. The Lord sits in the heaven and he does as he pleases. He has established his throne in the heavens. He sat as king over the flood. He is the king over the nations who laughs at their mounted rebellion against him. He is the one who is the true ruler and the true king. Now get, his people needed to hear this because they were not experiencing the benefits of this rule to their favor because of their sin. They needed to be reminded that God is the one on the throne and he will yet fulfill his promises, though it does not look like that at the moment. Now, in Revelation 6, with that as the background, what is the connection here? It is this, that again, it is a reminder that God is the one who is standing sovereign over the nations. And while there are several parallels in the imagery, there are some differences as well. But what is the same is this, is God executing his judgment on the nations. Those who stand outside of 
his redeeming purposes. But it gets a bit more specific by Jesus himself when he comes in the Gospels and begins to explain some of these same events. So while the imagery connects clearly in the overall idea with the prophecy of Zechariah, anticipating God's judgment on the nations and ultimately the restoration of his people, if you remember in Zechariah 14, it ends with Messiah coming and putting his feet on the Mount of Olives and in Jerusalem, establishing his kingdom by judging the rebels in it. But in the Gospels, we get a bit more of the content of this. Now, what's interesting, as if you'll remember the question that the apostles or the disciples asked Jesus as they were walking with him and one day coming out of the great temple area, and they, Jesus had told them these things would be destroyed, and they asked him, when are, the, when are these things going to be, the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Here I'm in Matthew 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but these are merely the beginning of birth pains. He repeats the same thing in Mark chapter 13. He repeats the same thing in Luke chapter 21. Namely this, in response to the question, there will be false Christ, there will be wars, and there will be famines and great calamity, physical calamities on the earth, such as earthquakes and other signs. That is exactly the pattern that we have in the first four seals given to us in Revelation chapter 6. The first seal is opened. A white horse comes out. This is what we'll look at in more detail next week. There is one who's going out to conquer and conquering on a white horse. It speaks of victory, but a victory that is presented as being empowered by God. A victory that is seen as being for God's purposes, but yet is for the purpose of deception. False Christ. False Christ, those who claim to be the agents of Christ, his anointed ones, and yet are not. He opens the second seal, and what is there? There's war. He went out, and him was granted to take peace from the earth. There's wars, and there's rumors of wars, and there is great hostility among men. The third seal is broken, and there is famine the great consequences of war and the destruction that is to come. The fourth seal is broken and there is death. And there is again war to be where men are killed with the sword and there is famine. And there is added to that pestilence and the wild beast of the earth. These are the things that are to come. They were anticipated. They're scattered throughout the prophets. They were anticipated by Christ himself. And they are here beginning to or reaching their fulfillment in the breaking of the seven seals. It is a waves of God's judgments that are coming, which is exactly what Christ predicted. What's interesting is that those accounts in the gospel, each one of those in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'll read from Matthew, these words are given. That is not yet the end, but all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. 
All of these things are the beginning of the birth pains. Meaning what? That in the recognition of those things, there is the beginning of God's judgment, but it is not the end of his judgment. Luke chapter 21 verse 9 puts it this way. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Now remember that Jesus is answering the question about the events that will take place at the end of the age. At the end of the age. This is not a, a, general, uh, a general statement about hearing what's happening in North Korea or over in China or somewhere else or throughout the history of the world, whatever wars were taking place at the time. This is a specific marker about specific events that, will, that are coming as, as Christ is bringing his kingdom that mark the end of the age, that are anticipatory of even greater and more calamitous judgments. In fact, each of these descriptions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is each followed by further descriptions of increased intensity of judgment that will include the blasphemy of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolations, the one who will desecrate the temporal, that is then followed by even greater global cataclysmic activity, great deception so that if possible even the elect could be deceived, and all of this preceding the return of Christ when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Again, this pattern fits precisely the flow of Revelation. And what we'll consider in brief next week, the final week that is anticipated for God's people. Particularly the climactic rise of the Antichrist and his blasphemy as it will unfold in Revelation chapter 13. And take us all the way to the end of chapter 18 and before the judgment of Christ coming on the white horse in chapter 19. The rise of the false prophet and the great deceits with signs and wonders and the amazing things that will be done in deception at this time. In other words, he is talking about here the beginning of the final week of God's judgment. And it is with deception, it is with war, it is with calamity all of which are the beginning of birth pains. Now, we'll look at what the beginning of those are next week, but let me end with this thought. This is a general observation. And it's important for us to understand. And this is the point of prophetic revelation. This is the point of God telling us these things. This is why he lets us know. And here's the observation. In one sense, some, some commentators uh, observe how there's a shift in focus, that there was this uh, focus on the glory of God, there was the Father on the throne, there was the Son found worthy coming and taking the scroll, the, the worship that's surrounding and all the events that are surrounding that throne with the flashes of lightning and the colors and the sounds and so forth. And now there's a focus on the earth, and that, that is true. There's, there is this now focus of the events as they're unfolding on the earth, but I would want to make this observation, that even though the focus of the vision in some sense moves from the centrality of the events of heaven to encompass the events of the earth, however, the connection that's made clear is key. Each of these events on the earth are the direct result of the command and the purpose of heaven. The war, the famine, the earthquake, the pestilence, these are all the result of what? Uh, an angelic being being summoned 
to execute the divine will of God on the earth. And it's important for us to remember this. And we must be careful not to, as we're prone to do, view earthly fears, uh, affairs as if they were merely the product of human activity. As if elections were merely elections of men. As if wars were merely the wars of men. As if nations and nations trying to overcome other nations and coalition of nations to accomplish purposes as they join together in force to, uh, to achieve their will. As if those were merely the workings of men. And as if the answer to that was merely the activity of men. As Christians, we don't view the world that way. We understand that the world, while involving the decisions of men, the consequences of man's actions, while we understand that God works his will through the agency of men on earth and his purposes through men on earth, the ultimate plan being worked out is of that of the divine creator of God himself. The mind of man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps. And so when we view the world as Christians under the light of or in the light of divine revelation, we do not watch the news, we do not read the newspapers, we do not look at things on YouTube, we do not follow Twitter updates and go to Facebook and whatever accounts are there, as if that were the end and whatever we can read there is the explanation. We must first see behind all of these events, God who is king, God who is judge, God who is redeemer, working out his plan for his glory and his purposes. This is exactly what Paul declared to the pagan philosophers when he was declaring to them God in whom we live and we move and we have our brain. He said, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. When you read your history book, why is one nation here? Why does it fall? Why does it rise? Why does a ruler come in its place? Why does the kingdom expand? Why are military quests either victorious or defeated? Why is that happening? Because God is raising up nations and he's causing them to fall. He's establishing the boundaries of their habitation. And then he's taking those boundaries away and replacing it with another. That's why it's happening. And why is he doing that? Because he is accomplishing a purpose. Some we can see, but ultimately it is a purpose that God knows and has ordained that will end and lead to his ultimate glory. And that is the point here, and that is what we're to hold on to. Let me give you just one other passage. How this, in a nutshell, is a biblical worldview. This, in a nutshell, is how Christians are to view everything. It's how we are to view culture. There's more to it, of course, but there, this is in a nutshell it. How are we to view culture? How are we to view movements? How are we to view the rise of evil and the hatred of righteousness? How do we view it when it goes well for the church? Well, in this way. It says in verse 9 of Ephesians 1, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind attention which he purposed in him being Christ, within a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. That's what he's doing. 
He's summing up all things to come up under the glorious authority and the rule of Jesus Christ as he establishes his kingdom on earth. That's what he's doing. That's what he's accomplishing. That is our hope. That is what keeps us from being dismayed, even though we hate the things, the rise of evil and its consequences. This is what keeps us from falling into despair in our own lives, is knowing that just as he is with the nations, so he is with the church, and so he is with every individual and personal sheep in the church, working out his purpose for his glory. And so we stumble, but we are not hurled headlong. We might have fear, but we ultimately can stand in peace on the rock who is ruling all things by his power in his kingdom and for his glory. And we actually, when we take these elements, we're giving testimony to that. As we'll read in just a moment, you remember the words of the Apostle Paul. We read them each week. Until his kingdom comes. Until his kingdom comes. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming. He is returning. And that is our hope and our joy. So let's pray. And the men will hand out the elements. Father, we need grace. We need grace, certainly in the initiation of our salvation, that you are the one who rescues us. We need grace to live the life that you have called us to and the ministry that you've called each individual to, to be upheld by your power. We need your grace to keep us and to preserve us as you convict us of sin, as we are upheld by the power that you give to be sustained in our faith and hope of the kingdom that is coming imperishable and defiled and that will not fade away. Father, we live in grace. Help us to live wisely. Help us to understand the reality of your work and your working out, your purposes and all of creation in our lives. Help us to find in you always our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Help us to run to you and to hide in you, O Christ, who is our life, that we might find encouragement, that we might find hope, that we might find certainty that enables us to live well in this world. And encourage us even now as we take these elements in the table, strengthen our faith by what they represent, by the truths that they are meant to lead us to and to consider. And Lord, I pray for any who might be among us who are outside of Christ, who are outside of your saving purposes, who might have much religion, even activity, but don't have a love for Jesus Christ and the evidence of your spirit in them. That today might be the day that you convict them and lead them to the foot of the cross and to him who is gentle and humble in heart. We pray these things in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen.